Good morning and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Art Chandra, the host of the program. Our American Heritage is a program where we explore in depth the American experience from its beginning to the present. And today we want to welcome back as our very special guest, Jason Rude. Jason, thank you for coming and sharing with us again about the Oklahoma City bombing. Hey, any chance I get to talk American history with Arch Hunter is a great day in my book, so I'm glad to do it again. Well, that's very kind of you, Jason. And listeners, any day that I can spend around Jason Rood to talk about American history and commiserate together, it's a great time. Jason has a phenomenal sense of humor. I laugh a lot of the things that we talk about or do, or we see a lot of things similarly in America. So if Jason lived in the Valley Forge area, He'd be one of my homies, and we'd be hanging out quite a bit. So, Jason, thank you for coming. <laughs> I'm sure our wives would not appreciate that very much. And oh boy, I yeah, imagine. we already get in, we already get in enough trouble with our wives without you know having camaraderie. So, well, exactly. well, listeners, Jason was talking about the Oklahoma City bombing and Timothy McVeigh on our last program. He was just really started to get into the nitty gritty of his topic. So, Jason, if you'd like to pick it up from there, we are all waiting to hear what you have to say about the bombing and Timothy McVeigh and why the Moore building in Oklahoma City. So, again, the floor is yours. Sure. So just to kind of recap where we were, the Alfred P. Murrah building was the building that Timothy McVeigh chose specifically because of the government agencies and is specifically the law enforcement government agencies that were involved or that were housed in that building, not to mention some other factors. The guy had a military background, so he understood explosives well enough, obviously, and he understood how to use explosives to create maximum damage, which is exactly what he was trying to do. This was 100% a payback, and he said it. It was a payback for Ruby Ridge and Waco, which we won't get too much into that right now. He used just a hair under 500-pound bomb using ammonium nitrates, nitromethane, and diesel fuel, and parked this rider truck right in front of the building, you know, near feet from the entrances. And when this thing went off, it was the equivalent of about 5,000 pounds of TNT, which through the forces involved with that bomb and everything, collapsed about a third of the building, injured approximately, and this is, they estimate 646 people in the building. I should say that's not injured. That's the amount of people they estimated were in the building at the time. And then it's going to kill 168 people, including 19 children. Mm. And uh, if you ever go down to Oklahoma City to the memorial, which I highly encourage, and if you do, make sure you go to the museum. The museum is so well done. But I think it's the 19 children now, and I know it was the 19 children then that really, really hurt a lot of Americans across this entire country. Yeah. You know, this guy, okay, it's one thing to attack the government, but there's, and he knew it, there was a daycare center on the second floor right underneath where he parked his truck. He knew he was going to kill kids, and he did it. Yeah, Yeah, just... If you can, because we know Timothy McVeigh is the more infamous one of the two. What about Terry Nichols? We don't hear much about his colleague, Terry Nichols. What about him, and why haven't we ever heard much about Nichols, mostly about McVeigh? Yeah, so McVeigh was the mastermind. Nichols did a lot more as an accomplice. There's actually a third guy. And of course, the name is completely escapes me right now. <laughs> and so you never hear about the third guy unless you actually really dig into research. And he is mentioned in the museum down in Oklahoma City. 
that guy pled out basically, and he provided information proving these other two had done what they'd done. And he is actually, I believe he's in witness protection. So, I mean, you could know him and not even know it. Uh, mm-hmm. Terry Nichols was convicted, obviously. His background, he, I mean, he worked at a grain elevator at one point. So, I mean, he understood how to get a hold of some of these agricultural products that were needed mm-hmm. to build the bomb. And he was the infamous, I'll say, John Doe number two. And in his case, he wasn't sentenced to death. So I think that's part of it. And I'm not even going to say he didn't talk. I would say he probably did a better job of laying a little lower. And of course, part of it was Timothy McVeigh was discovered within an hour after the bombing. Wow. Yeah. And, and they didn't even realize it. Like he got stopped. And that's the thing. Timothy McVeigh gets stopped on just a routine traffic stop for having no plates on his Mercury Marquis by a state trooper, an Oklahoma state trooper just north of Oklahoma City. And then when the trooper was talking with him, he noticed that McVeigh had a concealed weapon. And at that time, that was not legal in Oklahoma. Now, I I think they're an open carry state. But at that time, you couldn't do that. So he gets arrested for that and getting booked into jail. And so when the investigation, which moved very quickly, came up with McVeigh's name, they knew exactly where he was already. Hmm. And so talking two days after this, at the time, biggest terrorist attack in American history, we had a suspect and a whodunit already, where McNichols was obviously the next step, but they didn't, you know, that took some more time. And like I said, he was not executed. He resides at ADX Supermax Prison in Florence, Colorado, which is where like the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, Ramsey Youssef is the name I was trying to come up with. That's the guy last uh, episode. He was the guy who in 93 attacked the World Trade Center mm-hmm. and Eric Root, who was the Olympic Park bomber in Atlanta. I have a couple of questions about the building. We know on 9-11, when the towers came down, it affected other buildings around it, too. Were other buildings affected from the direct hit on the Murr building? That's a really, really good question, and I am completely prepared for that one. <laughs> 324 buildings in total were hit wow. in a four-block radius, so you're talking about 16 square blocks. Yeah, and, and so here's what's really crazy, talking just how loud this was and, and how impactful. I was talking with the media coordinator for the museum, and she actually led us on a tour when we were there visiting and doing our filming. And it was spectacular because of the stories we got to hear that most other people don't get to hear. And so we asked, you know, where was she? And she said at the time she was working for a TV station as a reporter. And they were, I want to say it was either five or nine miles north of downtown. And they thought a plane hit the building. That's how loud it was. Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, again, just an idea of just how powerful this thing is as it went off. In these other buildings, were there other people also killed? Or was that primarily in the Muir building that people died? Yeah, so primarily the deaths came out of the Murrah building itself. But yes, there were some deaths that came in a couple. I think there's five deaths that came from outside the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want, there was one that was on the street. There was one in the water. I forget what the name of the building was across the street, but the water administration building, something like that. There was one in there that had died. And then uh, there's three other ones that I'd have to go back and, and double check. But yes, there was a few outside the building, but uh, the vast majority were inside the building. I mean, this was a, this, the Muir building is a very large building. And you mentioned that about one third of it was destroyed immediately. 
Mm-hmm. What did they do? Did they rebuild the Murr building or did they take it down and make it a memorial? Yeah, so the responders came in and obviously you do a search and rescue and there's much as you can or they quickly turned into a search and recovery because they realized that there were some people that just weren't going to make it after a certain amount of time. It's just, it's, it's not likely. And so what they did is they got as many people out as they safely could, both alive in the early stages and then recovered the bodies of those that they safely could. There was a few people, I want to say there were two or three people that they could not safely get to. They knew where they were, but they couldn't safely get to them because of the structure being pretty unstable after the bombing. And so what happened then in late May, they demolished the rest of the building and then went in and recovered the rest of those bodies and then cleaned up the rubble. What has happened is the Alfred P. Murrah building has been rebuilt about a block to the south, I think it is, of the original site. And the original site now is the memorial. So when you go to the memorial, there's a waterway and then there's a grassy area where they have the empty chairs. And that is the site where the building was. And some of the original exterior subgrade level walls are still there. And so you can see a few spots of the original walls, the base level walls. And who were involved in the recovery, the responders and the recovery after the bombing, Jason? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, that's the part of this story that I think is, you know, as important to focus on as what happened in the early going and the chase to, to catch the killer. It's going to start off with EMSA, which is EMSA. EMSA, which is the EMS organization, the ambulance organization in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma City Fire, Oklahoma City PD are going to be involved, obviously. You had that type of thing happen. Those agencies are going to be showing up immediately to deal with the initial response. If there's a fire, put it out. If there's rescue, go rescue the people. If there's people that need to go to the hospital, get them to the hospital. And, you know, there's a very famous picture of Chris Fields, who was a firefighter holding an infant by the name of Bailey Alman, and it won a Pulitzer Prize. And, and it's uh, very, very famous. In fact, there's a statue made out of it now. He's wearing a tan fire suit with a red helmet, and there's a baby that is very, very obviously injured. And unfortunately, baby Bailey did not make it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a name that stands out for me in particular when I look at this one. And the two times I've been down there, I always stop at her chair in particular just because of... Uh, I don't know, a, a, a connection. I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know the family at all. But I, I again, uh, growing up around the emergency services, my brother's a state trooper. My dad is a retired volunteer firefighter. I work in the emergency services as a volunteer. I can understand what it's like to have to pick up a kid. Mm-hmm. I've never had that happen, you know, with, with a, a kid that is uh, that injured. But I can completely empathize with how difficult that had to be and knowing there's only so much you can do. Mm. Just awful. You know, so, just, just but yeah, awful. It, it is. And so to, to, to further answer your question, though, obviously the FBI ATF are going to become involved very quickly. FBI actually had an event going on, kind of a staff, what would you call it, uh, camaraderie type thing. I think they were playing, they had kind of a golf tournament type thing going on. They got a phone call and said this happened, and they all had to left and, and drove right back to the city to deal with this. 
And then the other ones you don't think about are the urban search and rescue teams that came in from all across the country, including mm-hmm. Task Force One, which would be out of the DMV, Washington, D.C. metro area. The National Weather Service, you don't even think about that one, but when you start thinking about dust and smoke and whatnot, the National Weather Service, or, or for that matter, predicting storms that could be coming in that would be dangerous for people to be outside. You don't think about that one, but that's they play a huge role. The Air Force, the Civil Air Patrol, Red Cross, and then, as you can imagine, cadaver dogs, listening devices, etc. And here's one that I didn't know until just recently. At the time, the movie Twister, which I know there's a sequel getting ready to come out, right, or getting ready to go into production, and it's got an Iowa connection for me because Twister was actually partially filmed in Iowa, but also filmed in Oklahoma. Cast members from that movie stopped filming and came in to help as much wow. as they could. Yeah. Yeah. And here's the other part, and, and I'm going a little farther than what you're asking about, but I think it's important to note, not only did these agencies respond, but the community did too. And people brought stuff relentlessly. And there's some outstanding stories about what the community did. So for one, the schools were still in session. So the children in the schools would write positive notes of encouragement mm. for the responders because, you know, when you bring in these urban search and rescue teams, they're there for, you know, a week at a time, two weeks at a time. So they're set up in a gym and they're on cots and air mattresses and whatnot, staying there. And obviously when you're doing urban search and rescue and something like that, at that point, you know, your day is going to consist of finding body parts. And I don't care how hardened a person is, that gets really difficult. And it's very sad. And so what these kids did is they wrote these great notes. So when these guys would come back from their work, they would lay down and they would find a note of encouragement every single night from, you know, kids within the community. There was another story that's really cool. A responder said, you know, it'd be really nice if I could get a haircut. And he just said it in passing, like just as he was walking out the door and somebody heard this. And the next day they had at least one, if not two uh, barbers available right Mm. then and there, completely free to the workers. Anything you need, go ahead. People donated treats, food, candy, toilet paper, anything they needed to make sure that these responders were cared for. You know, and so, I mean, there were people that were bringing in baked goods every night to go along with that note they would put on their bed. There would be some type of chocolate treat, whether it was a Hershey's Kiss or a little Hershey's bar or M&M's or whatever. They had a little treat every single night to be able to, um, you know, have a little love and respect for the show and to them. So they knew how much they were appreciated. And then the other thing that I'd like to talk about with that one, I want to make sure I get it out there because I actually had, I know two people that were on these teams. There's national grief response teams mm-hmm. that go out types of things, and their job is for counseling, but not for the victims. It's for the responders who, like I said, yes. are dealing with finding body parts and death all day. Again, that takes its toll. And so these guys are there walking amongst the rubble, walking amongst the perimeter available at nighttime just to talk and be there and, and listen to these responders' needs as they process what they're dealing with. And Jason, one of the things that I remember from President Clinton speaking, and I'm paraphrasing it, he said, we always say that during a great tragedy in America, Americans respond. Yes. And and we see that time and time again through tragedies in our own country and tragedies in other countries, how as we fight and bicker and fight with each other, when 
push comes to shove, Americans respond to help each other through these great times of, of trial and travel. Oh, yeah. You know, we see that in our own communities. You know, it doesn't even have to be a, a national trauma. It can be, you know, I, I grew up in Iowa. Or I, I still live in Iowa, I should say. You know, in, in 2008, we had massive flooding. 2093, we had massive flooding. When that happened, you know, the uh, where I grew up, we had a river that goes through town that it swelled up a little bit. And the, the call went out that we needed a sandbag. And I mean, there was a thousand people sandbagging for eight hours, mm-hmm. you know, to make that we did what we could uh to help our neighbors. And we have people coming in from out of town, but it doesn't even have to be a community-wide thing. Right. Think about, you know, another one we'll, that we'll see here that it's it's um, very farmer-ish. And I'm, I swear to God, I didn't grow up on a farm, but it, this is a good, <laughs> uh, you know, if you see a, a farmer passes away suddenly in the summertime and, you know, the crop's already been put in, everything's ready to go with it, but he's not there to harvest it. You'll see the neighbors and friends and whatnot, they'll come in with six, seven, eight combines and take that, you know, crop and, and harvest it in one day yes. and uh, yeah. not ask for a penny in exchange. Yeah. Well, I have two other questions for you, Jason. And one of them is what was the end result for Timothy McVeigh? And then the question after that is how do we remember? What, is, what are the remembrances of the Oklahoma City bombing? Yeah. So to talk about what happened to Timothy McVeigh, we have to talk about the investigation because really that story is pretty fascinating. What happened was they found an axle. And I thought to myself, well, there's how many cars that got blown up? Yeah. Could have been any axle. And then I got to thinking about it. It's like, no, when you start thinking about where the forces are pushing, there's only one axle that's going to come out. All the other cars are going to be dented, pushed, and whatnot, but those axles aren't necessarily going to get blown off the car, necessarily. But the one that's connected to the truck that got blown apart because it was the bomb, that axle is going to probably be on its own. And that's what happened. They found it about 500 yards away. It flew that far in the air. you know. So Utah, or 300 yards. It flew about three football fields, and it landed next to the Renaissance building. And, you know, for those that don't know, vehicle a VIN number, a vehicle identification number. There's one on, you know, kind of the dash of your vehicle that everybody knows about. But if you don't know, there's a lot of, they call them secret ones, mm-hmm. all over on these vehicles, especially the engine block and stuff that, you know, chop shops would tend to take apart and sell. So what happened is they found this axle and then they found the VIN number. And so immediately they knew what truck was used to do this. Mm. So once you know what truck that is, you can start tracing that back. And it was traced back. And I, I don't have the exact specifics, the names and whatnot, because I didn't write them down because I, you know, wasn't thinking. <laughs> but uh, they traced it back to, I think, a body shop that rented it. And I forget from there how they got it, but then they traced it back to a hotel. And McVeigh had used a false name to rent the truck, but he didn't use a false name at the hotel. And so once they got that name from the hotel, like, yeah, we got that. Now all of a sudden said, okay, who is this guy? And they realized, oh my gosh, he's in jail in Perry, Oklahoma. He's about to get released, you know, on bond from this weapons charge he's about, he's facing. He's within an hour of getting, you know, released. And all of a sudden the phone call goes up to, hey, do you have Timothy that's based in your jail? And the jail says, Yeah. Hold him. Don't let him go anywhere. We're pretty sure he's the guy who bombed the building. 
And of course, that got caught in the news. So, I mean, when he came out of the building in Perry, Oklahoma, there mm-hmm. were cameras all over the place. Um, and, and of course, then once you've got that, you can start putting together a lot of the different pieces. It was an exhaustive effort, the investigation, with, oh gosh, I want to, there were over 100,000 pieces of evidence that they had gathered, many of which are still in possession of the museum. So, like, and we'll, we'll talk more about that, but the Glock that he had on him, is in that museum. The car, the 73 Mercury Marquis was driving is in that museum. Hmm. Yeah, exhaustive search, obviously. And then once he was convicted, he was sentenced to death. And uh, that sentence was carried out, I believe, in 2001 in Terre Haute, Indiana, at the federal execution chamber there at the penitentiary in Terre Haute. So he's not been with us now for 21 years. And to my knowledge, he showed no remorse. If I recall it correctly. So, and so now share with us the memorial. What is the memorial, please? So the memorial is really well done. There's a lot of symbolism, as many memorials do have. There's two towers on each end of this. It it looks like it's about the size of a football field. It's probably a little longer, a little narrower. And in the middle there, it looks like it's a reflecting pool, but it's very shallow. You know, they use black kind of marble stone with some water over it so it reflects and that water flows so you get a little bit of that water sound and on the east tower it says 901 and that represents the before the tranquility of the city before it happened and on the west end it says 903 and that represents after or rebuilding because they say the rebuilding started at 903 902 is not written anywhere but that's the middle and that's the space where the building occupied. And obviously, that's the actual bombing. So set back then, if you're looking from the museum side of the memorial towards the south, behind that reflecting pool then is a grassy kind of hill that goes up into just an upward slope. And that's within the footprint of the building, which in fact, like I said, the original foundation wall is still there. And that kind of contains all that. And then there's 168 chairs that are empty, representing all of the people that passed away, including the 19 children. And you know it's the 19 children because those chairs are smaller. Mm-hmm. And then the way it's laid out is that it's not even rows and, and rank and file. There's for every level that the people died, that's how many chairs mm-hmm. are in that row. So if there was 19 people on that floor, there's 19 chairs in that row that type of thing. Uh, and then, Yeah. And then the museum itself is in what is the old Oklahoma Water Conservation Board, I think is what the building was called. And in fact, they've got a room that has been largely untouched since the bombing. It was across the street. And so you can see what that room looked like after the bombing. But anyway, you go in and obviously there's a fee to get in, a modest fee, which helps them keep everything running. And then the first thing you do when you start the experience is you're in this water conservation boardroom. I don't think it's the actual board. I I don't know for sure, I guess. But anyway, you're hearing this recording of the proceedings that are going on there. And all of a sudden you hear this massive boom and rumble. And that's the the recording, the actual recording of the bomb going on. Mm. And then you step into the actual museum where it all happened. 
Well, Jason, again, we're up against time. So thank you for coming and sharing. This is difficult to talk about. A tragedy in America with the murder of so many people and these innocent children and what happened from the background and what we can remember from the Oklahoma City bombing. So, Jason, thank you. This is very interesting, but very difficult subject to talk about. So we want to thank you for coming and sharing your knowledge with us about the Oklahoma City bombing. Well, thank you, Arch, and I appreciate the invite and the offer. It is a tough topic to talk about, but it's an important one. You know, it it often gets overshadowed by the events of 9-11. But up until 9-11, this was the largest terrorist attack on Mm -hmm. American soil. And so it's important to put that out there and remember what happened in Oklahoma City as well. Yes, it is. So again, so we want to thank you for coming. So listeners, this is WFYL 1180, Working for Your Liberty.